Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you as well. We just announced in our pre-podcast, what did we call that, the pre-cast? The warm-up. The warm-up. The warm-up. It's a very technical term. Uh, But uh, we are uh, hosting a discussion with Martin Luther King, part of the New Core discussions, New Core, the group out of Philadelphia, uh, we might be the only one happening in Bucks County, but the ongoing legacy of Martin Luther King um, early on this month was the 50th anniversary of his assassination. So there have been discussions going around the greater Philadelphia, Delaware Valley area. So this is – we're having it tonight. Uh, one of my former students is going to be there, so we're excited. He's going to be co-moderating with me, so we're excited. So I'm working on a new core. I'm doing a workout called Shift Shop, which is 25 minute workouts, 35. Now I'm in the 45 minutes. So by the end of this cycle, I might have a new core. Oh, that would be exciting. Very good. You're working well. You do. You're looking good. All right. So this is part two of our at least three. You never know. With us, we could drift into a fourth episode. We could. Um, but uh, the offices of of Jesus. Just review from the first one. Um, I mean, this goes throughout the church history has talked about this. John Calvin, very important part of his theology, and subsequential theologians in his wake have talked about it. So last episode, we talked about Jesus as prophet, and today we're going to talk about Jesus as priest. We indeed, we are. John Calvin, other theologians, Joel Osteen, big part of his theology, the offices. <laughs> Ken Ham. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, that's... Those names come right to my mind. Absolutely. Well. Really, the leading lights, so All to right. speak. Now, it's interesting that you and I, in some of our pre-conversations about this, what's unique about the idea of Jesus as priest is that he's both, he's a, he's you know presented as much as offering as priest. Right. And the liturgy, you know, both priest and victim kind of thing. Yeah, right. So in terms of, start of so we should start with the Gospels. How, where in the Gospels do you see him being portrayed as priest? Well, I mean, I was thinking about this earlier, and it's very interesting because on one level, right, what's interesting about Jesus is everything else in creation, when clean and unclean come together, the unclean contaminates the clean, right? Right, so you're from the from the Levitical. Right. But Jesus actually, contam- I mean, priests more pronounce and recognize you're clean, but they don't kind of make contact and make you clean. Right. But Jesus is sort of... I mean, he actually makes people clean. So you think that so part of that is constantly encountering and allowing himself to become ceremonially unclean as a function of the priestly ministry. Yeah, and the fact that he is actually that you know what the whole liter- what the whole cultic structure God gives Israel about is about restoring them to Himself, right? right and through right. and them learn. It's interesting too because you you look at like for instance the what can you eat, right? You can eat animals. Generally, the clean animals that you can eat are generally domesticatable, right? And the wild animals that are not domesticatable, with the exception of pigs. Pigs are kind of a unique thing, but like, but you know, there things like chewing the cud and things like this. So that they're able to, you know, like you think then what what priests do is they train Israel to learn what animals are clean, and Israel is to be like the like what's what are the wild beasts, right? The the, the nations, the Gentile nations, and so you have this idea like through learning. The, the clean domesticated Israel becomes a do, the domesticatable flock, 
for God the Shepherd. Hmm. Interesting. I think I got that insight from Jim Jordan. Okay, that sounds like a Jim, a Jim Jordan. Jim, I, Jim Jordan, yeah. wonderfully insightful, exegetical Jedi. You know, I, when I think in terms of uh, in the Gospels, in terms of Jesus and his life, I had two, th- two areas to me um, immediately come to mind. First of all, his relationship with the temple. And, yeah. Um, you know, in, in Luke's gospel, he gets there twice. John's gospel, he's there multiple times. And I think, you know, this whole, this whole idea of him, you know, this, you know, comparing his body to the temple, uh, certainly the cleansing of the temple, um, and his taking an authoritative role, you know, being put that way as a child in Luke's gospel, but during the last week of his life, his teaching in, in the synoptics, it's the last week, his teaching in the temple places him in a kind of, he, he's purposely being placed or placing himself in a position of authority in the context yeah. of, of the second temple. And the sign of Jonah, I mean, you know, the whole thing when they show us the sign, I'll only give you one sign, the sign of Jonah, which Rob Bell has a podcast on that, which is one of the best explanation of the gospel I've ever heard. He talks about, give me a sign, the sign of Jonah. And it, there's the sense in which the sign you'll get, I mean, the, will be this priestly sign. Um, that, yeah, yeah, very. Yeah, it's also, it's um, a very fascinating, that's uh, one of Merton's work where his, his journals when he was preparing to be ordained are called the sign of Jonas. It was also an interesting thing. I think uh, in John's gospel. Any thoughts on the Jonas brothers? None. Uh, <laughs> none. <laughs> Zero. Zilch. Nada. <laughs> But uh, in John's gospel, I think it's a, there's something more going on there. I think uh, the priestly role may be the most pronounced in the context of his life. Uh, certainly, the extended narrative on Jesus being the bread of heaven. I mean, there's a, there's a this idea of of Jesus being the sacrifice in the Eucharist. The idea of him being the bread offered. So that you know, that's just not only a play on Eucharistic, it's, but it's also a play on. The bread that's in the temple and things like that. I think that's a very, um, I mean, in, in, in this idea of him being the offering given, I think that's, it appears there. And then, of course, his priestly prayer in John 17. Yeah. What's interesting too is I think, uh, this is an interesting passage I want to share from a book we talked about last time, Robert Sherman in this book, King, Priest, Prophet. Everybody seems to have their own unique, like, ordering of these things. But he says that, um, in other words, Christ's sacrifice is indeed a vicarious sacrifice, a sacrifice made in our stead. But as such, it is not just a sin or guilt offering. It is also the sacrifice of the new Paschal Lamb and is an offering for first of first fruits. Not only does he suffer punishment on our behalf, he also shields us from the deadly consequences that stem from our attachment to our old way of life. And finally, he becomes the new creation and on our behalf establishes access to it and full enjoyment of it. He has indeed placed himself in our stead to bear the consequences, to, to bear the condemnation we deserve, but he also places himself in our stead to enable our safe passage from old bondage to new life. And then in our stead, bears fruit for our recreation and fulfillment. The Christian tradition has not been wrong to promote Christ's death as a sacrificial offering for our sin, but it has been one-sided in not also promoting Christ's death as a liberating Pascal sacrifice and a sacrificial sowing that enabled a new harvest of unity with God and one another. Christ serves as the old humanity, and in his death, that old humanity is confronted by divine judgment and abolished. But Christ is also the new human, the first person of a new harvest. And in his sacrifice, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we too are made new. I think that's really interesting, yeah. especially because the place where 
you know, the the place where the Eucharist is established is a Passover meal. So here you have, which probably, is probably, yeah, probably, or, or N.T. Wright says, if it was done the day before, if it was done one day off or something, that would be even more believable. She's just saying, I'm doing a day off just to show, you know, because yeah, Passover then, is in the air. Right. I right. mean, like, so, you know, so, I, I agree 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, so that's interesting because that's a different metaphor yeah. than, than the, the priest cult sacrifice. Right. It is the sort of deliberate. So I think that's a really interesting thing that, that Sherman is on to that we, we think of the priestly office as just sort of past tense or the, or, or bearing the condemnation, but the sense in which it's also a liberative thing and it's sort of the, the old, the seed, unless it dies, it can't bring forth something new. Like that's an interesting sort of, like yeah, you know, there's the three tenses of salvation, kind of past, present, and future yeah. kind of thing. I think that's a really interesting lens, and and he does a good job of unpacking the scriptural metaphors, like that, that they come, all, you know, that, that when you put them together, this is really clear. But it's interesting. Traditionally, the church has sort of been a little one sided. I think he's right. Like that, the, the it all gets kind of bunched under one. Right, no, I think that's right. I, for instance, in, in Hebrews where it talks about being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that doesn't have anything to do with the temple sacrifice. Right, 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 I right. Mean, I think that that supports that. I, I do, you know, we, you know, one of the things in terms of um, that passage— And being, you think about Abraham with Melchizedek where he where Abraham wins this battle and, and, Ab- and Melchizedek puts out bread and wine for him, and yet he's eating a victorious meal in a land that's not yet his. Right, right. And, and this is funny because the New Te- NIV Study Bible says something like, this has nothing to do with the New Testament ordinance community. I'm like, are you exegetically challenged? Like, <laughs> this is everything to do. This is every Eucharist, right? That we, we wait for the adoption of our bodies. We're eating a victory meal in a land we have not yet obtained. They may have killed Zwingli on the battlefield, but he lives <laughs> he on. Zwingli lives. It's like Jefferson lives. <laughs> Zwingli lives in the New International Version Study Bible. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart. Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Again, one of the things we probably even should start with the fact, and that that reading reminded me, you know, at the baptism where he, where John the Baptist, you know, and the behold the Lamb of God who takes right, right, right. 
So there's a sense from, you know, from regardless of what happens between, you know, the, the story is set up from the beginning and the last great prophet or the return of the prophet is announcing the the sacrificial role of, of, of the priest, of the high yeah. priest of God. Yeah. You know, probably you could say in many ways this, there's a, Hebrews is an extended meditation on the idea of Christ as Christ as priest, and there's some very powerful ideas in there. First of all, uh, you know, the idea of Christ as the intercessor. So the, the part of the priestly role is established in the ascension, as in, in the role that Christ being on the right hand side of the Father and in a position of authority. And so there's a sense where we are, as humanity, are taking taken into the very life of the Trinity. And our priest, and then you know that's in chapter, that's in chapter two. But in checks chapter three of Hebrews, it talks about us him being we have a high priest who's made like us in all ways. So that's that's the other that's the human side yeah. too. So yeah. it's both the exalted Christ, but in in the exaltation, we what leads to the exaltation is his radical identification. And you have yeah, and you have the Exodus theme in the sense of the old to new covenant. Like, you know, the Exodus is a marking of things being made new for Israel, right? A new way of life under a new kind of covenantal structure. So you have that in Hebrews too. I mean, this, yeah. the, the, he's establishing a new way through his priesthood of, of humanity coming to God and God coming to humanity. Right. You know, I think uh, Austin Farr wrote that book about Revelation, the rebirth of images. But in, in many ways, the entire New Testament is a rebirth of of images and themes, and certainly the gospel writers and and, the, and then the early church, the early Christian writers are seeing, you know, the typology. Uh, sometimes I think typology can almost become this. Uh, we we forget the beauty of it. I mean, and I think it's good that we have reclaimed our the sense of the the New Testament being a Jewish book and all that's good. But I still think the typology is a very powerful thing to see what's what all these m- images and all these centuries of tradition or what's being reworked. Well, and it's also, it has the virtue of being the way that the apostles read the Bible. Read the no, yeah. scripture. <laughs> no, it's, it, no, it is a way. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, there's not much allegory except for a little in Galatians and some other places. There are what we would call allegories, but like in Paul's, but most of it is topology. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to get, if you want, I mean, Hebrews can be the book of Hebrews. You can almost do. I've 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 done a lecture on Hebrews. And um, I, did, I taught a class once on history of interpretation, and if you want to understand how they, like you said, how the early church read its Bible, the book of Hebrews is pretty good. I made a joke. I've preached on Hebrews at Presbyterian Church in Mendham, uh, New Jersey, mostly older people. And I said, well, and also before we get into the meat of this passage, it settles an age-old debate at the fellowship hall. Who makes the coffee, men or the men or the women? Well, it's clear it says Hebrews. And they all started laughing, and I thought, I don't know. Which I feel worse for that I made the joke or that they laughed at it. Yeah, that, that was that was it's a, pretty bad. I felt hungry. Pre- that, that's a sign of uh, humor starvation. There, I felt terrible about myself. You, yeah, it was a cheap laugh. Yeah, I don't feel very good about you right now either for that. But you know what? Whatever it takes. You know what we also said: a laugh is as, as a groan is as good as a laugh when you're trying to do something. So I groan. It depends on the context, but I will say that <laughs> I will I will concede to that. You know, one of the other things while you were saying uh, was this idea of Christ as being the the breaking down the dividing wall in Ephesians chapter two, where he talks about he abolished the law of his commandments and ordinances that he might create himself one new humanity in the place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile and might rec- Reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. That's putting together the hostility through it. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, peace offering, reconciliation. I mean, there's a lot of, if you would, cultic imagery as well. Yeah. That, that merges with the baptismal imagery as well in Ephesians. So this idea that for he is our peace uh, in his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. 
the Wallfox story. By the way, I think the next time you pass the peace in your church, it's a power. Love each other more and just give a peace sign if it's flu season. Okay, that's brought to you a message from a man who's married to a healthy Yeah, she's like, oh, God. But Lindy, after, the, after church, just, it just Purell, Purell, Purell. All right. At any church, and you, know, like, and you wanted to, you wanted to eat, drink poison, step on snakes the other day when we were doing Mark sixteen. Well, I assume the poison would kill the germs. <laughs> I, I have a thing. I have a way. I think about these things. Yeah, that's good. Well, I, there is there is a way. Um, but but for those of you, who it's are, a way. It's not the way. <laughs> but for those, of it's you, like it's like Elvis. He's a king, right. and he's maybe the king with a small definite article, but he's not the king. Right, very. He's good. not the king of kings. He's the king, but he's not the king of kings. All right, that, that's good. That really that worked it out for me. Yeah, you know. What about the king of pop? Are you just like throwing Michael Jackson into mix? You Do you think Michael Jackson is the last universal pop star we had that had st- like m- just mass appeal, like across demographics, across? Um, Justin Timberlake. Oh, Beyonce. Beyonce. Yeah, Beyonce. Beyonce, Beyonce yeah, maybe. Yeah, Beyonce. Yeah. Beyonce maybe. Yeah, Beyonce. All right. <laughs> All right, I'll I'll seed Beyonce. All right, what <laughs> one other thing here? I think about this this text. Well, I was what I was going to say about passing the peace. If you if you can think about this passage while you do it, the Christ is our peace. Yeah, that's. I mean, even that. I mean, you know, we you know, I talk at my church. You know, because you have been forgiven. Now share that. Yeah, there's something quite appropriate about being done after a penitential rite. Yeah, I think, and that's when we do it in ours. Uh, I think um, that's where it's supposed to be. But uh, I think this idea that uh, I remember that passage in, I guess it's Life Together, Bonhoeffer says that when you love someone, when you love a fellow Christian, you're not, you're, it's not, you're not loving what's lovable about them. But you're, the Christ in you is loving the Christ in them, which in many ways is an extension of this verse, and it is the priestly function of bringing us together. Yeah, I mean, some yeah. of the priest, the priest convened the people. The priest was the person who stood. We often think that stood, you know, between God and the people, but he he brought the people together. The people were brought together in the priestly role. You knew the joke about the priest who was tapping his microphone. It wasn't on. He said, "There's something wrong with this microphone," and the congregation just responded, "And also with you." Yeah. <laughs> Bad, it's bad joke day yeah, for Scott. Here yeah, we go. Okay. All right. Uh, Scott will be coming up with new the, the preacher jokes you wish you forgot. Hey, everybody. I'm here on Thursday. Oh, <laughs> no respect. They get no respect. My favorite Rod, Rodney Dangerfield joke is I went in the, uh, to the doctor. I said, my wife's got a venereal disease. He gave himself a shot of penicillin. Yeah. Oh, no respect. Uh, I watched him like like a year or two ago. I watched uh, Rodney Dangerfield. So he, he rose from the dead? I mean, I'm saying it was on YouTube, like okay. an old, like when he was in his prime on Johnny Carson, and we do that routine. Oh my gosh, it's just amazing. Like, I mean, he was just on fire. Like, we joke about it now, but like when it when he was doing it in his prime, it was awesome. All right. So, can we say this also? Because we said, you know, that like if the prophet is kind of the modern response, the modern anxiety of of meaning the anxiety rooted in meaninglessness or nihilism and the priestly probably relates to this moral anxiety and the first great just kind of substitutionary priestly theologizer systematically is anselm which right. he's fallen on hard times but sherman quoting colin gunton here and this is i think from the actuality of the atonement i think is where he's quoting this from let me look oh in the footnote it is the actuality of the atonement all right I thought I remembered that. Uh, he says, It is sometimes dismissibly observed that Anselm takes his view of legality from the medieval feudal order, and the suggestion 
is that, that, that this is like in, this is to liken the deity to an arbitrary or oppressive ruler. The fact is, however, that the opposite is the case, and Anselm will not be understood unless this is appreciated. It was the duty of the feudal ruler to maintain the order of rights and obligations without which society would collapse. Anselm's God is understood to operate analogically for the universe as a whole, as the upholder of universal justice. And there's something like, he got, if I remember in this passage, in the Actuality Atonement book, Gutten talks about the, the beauty of the cosmos, like the order of the cosmos. Right. So this is not sort of God's honor is offended and God's got this sort of fragile ego narcissistically. It's more the sense that th- th- things are out of balance and things have to be put right and God puts them right. And yeah, in the, and in the context of um, you know early the early Middle Ages, uh, the feudal lord often was the only thing standing between you and total chaos and and destruction. So I mean, I think the the whole feudal system actually came as a reform. Part of it actually came out of a out of a tenth uh, century peace some a peace movement. Actually, it was kind of it's a pretty remarkable story. Again, you know, we we know the bad consequences, but I think that's a very important. Uh, you know, I think Anselm was so often. Uh, Presented as a cliche, um, but he was a very important and remarkable spiritual writer as well, and a demythologizer. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there was a lot of sort of bad folk religion that kind of became theology, and Anselm was saying, "Wait, this can't. This is too mythological." I mean, right. to- no, no, he, he's certainly a, a, one can see it as an advancement in a lot of different ways. You know, one of the things I think I think our image of Christ. Um, Affects um, affects our piety in our church. You know, it's interesting. Last night, uh, students were giving presentations in my class, and um, uh, Pentecostalism. Uh, two of them did Pentecostalism. Two, and both of them are people who had come out of that, and some and some were still pastoring in it and are working in it. And one of the things, you know, the idea of God blessing and prosperity, you know, the, the kingly role. I mean, sometimes some churches and pieties where, you know, if Jesus is king, then you and I are sons and daughters of the king, so we should be, you know, ruling and benefiting from that. And again, we'll talk, that's jumping ahead. But I do think one of the things that's happened um, in, I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, I think um, in some levels, the in the breakdown of of institutional Christianity that's going on now and the rethinking of Christianity I think that a lot of people are uh, avoiding one of the essential components of, of what the church is, and that's the priestly function. You know, it's funny. I, I certainly, when I started this work, I mean, the, Jesus is, as the radical prophet was was certainly my model of, you know, and what you thought you were going to be about. And um, and frankly, it's part of the reason I did youth ministry, because I just uh, <laughs> found the church just to be—I uh, I avoided working in a church in part because it, it seemed so compromised and, and so mundane. But one of the most powerful transformations that, that the ministry has done for me has been to see the power and the need of the priestly ministry, and that you really, you really do st- you stand in the way of Christ. You stand in, in, in the position of Christ, and you're ministering Christ, and how we desperately need um, um, that role in our lives, and that, there, that the church is a place where sins are forgiven, where prayers are given, where people come to be healed and to be given the grace of God. That is— I think there's no greater function for the for, there's no greater purpose for the church in its own life together. Now we're called to do mission in the world and, and pro- proclaim the gospel, but all this sometimes is anti Christendom stuff. I think I think babies getting thrown off out with the bathwater. And you know when you go um, when you go to church and it, and it feels a little bit like you know a, a bad coffee house concert. I, you know I think that is missing. The what point. about when it's a good coffee house concert? Well, I'd rather go to a good coffee house. <laughs> <laughs> 
mean, I mean, I I have nothing against you know good you know the music being good and the ambiance being good, but the fact is people people need confession. They need priests. They need a priest. And I I feel like I'm like the, one of the most unlikely candidates to be a priest, but. So much of my ministry. At what period? I think in the medieval period, you'd have done just fine. You'd have been in the top quarter, at least, of the crop. Right. Maybe that, yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be good. Yeah. If I, you know, it would been, I wouldn't mind been, being a bishop with, if I had an army, that would have been awesome. Like, yeah. Yeah. I would have, I've been all right with that. I've probably gotten a lot of trouble if I had an army. Yeah. yeah. I would be in a lot of trouble now if I had risk. an army. Risk. That's why I like risk. Yeah. yeah we were talking about risk. Always but, start in Australia. Yeah. But I think that priestly function is, is so important. You know, I was meeting just today with a pastor talking about, you know, some strategies about working with the church. And he was talking about this church and it's a small church, but that they, uh, you know, he was, he was saying that, you know, they don't seem to, they, they have this, you know, they have this, remarkable sense of their mission in the community. Uh, and he says, you know, what they do, they seem to come together, and being in church is, together is, is enough. And he was kind of frustrated with that. And I said, well, it sounded like they have Roman Catholic piety. Yeah. And it sounded like the light came on. And I said, one of the things I think Protestants often misread about Roman Catholic piety is because they don't have, you know, <laughs> they don't have, you know, a lot of stuff going on in the week and things like that. Probably understood if you receive the sacrament, Read the scriptures, say your prayers, you're out in the world be living the Christian life because you've been given what you need to do to do that. Yeah, I think also there's sort of the, and Sherman gets into this in his book in, in ways that I think are quite helpful, but he, he says, you know, he talks about this sort of people saying that these metaphors, people, a lot of theologians say we need new metaphors, these metaphors aren't helpful. And yet, you know, you look at pop culture, sacrifice metaphors, right? Like everywhere in novels, film, you know, like it, what did uh, M. Scott Peck say? That, you know, anywhere where some great evil is undone, there's some great sacrifice. Like, I mean, this is so... Oh, like, oh yeah. yeah. It's just built every into movie, the fabric Every of the movie universe. you see, yeah. Yeah, it's just... So that, I mean, that is so spurious. And then, you know, the other thing he says, which I think is really helpful, is, you know, we ought to think of justice in the New Testament account. That we ought to think of the priestly office as less a settling of accounts and more a story of poetic justice. This is Bart, the judge, judge in our place. And then he says, you know, Bart says at the end of that long discussion in 4-1 that basically I, you know, the, the, I could have done this whole thing with a cultic metaphor and it would, and he explains in the fine print in a few pages, how it would have worked differently right, if, right. if priest, but, and then in a, in a section where Sherman is talking about pastoral implications, just something I think it bears quoting. He says, um, he says that one of the first practical implications of Christ's priestly sacrifice is that his death on the cross gives us an alternative approach to thinking about and enacting justice especially in the collective sphere, but also in individual relations, for too often justice is conceived as an elaborate exercise in bookkeeping, with true justice only to be achieved when accounts are balanced to the very last penny. Real life and real relations are never reducible to such precise figures. In this mindset, could justice ever be truly satisfied? And he talks about interesting historical examples of problems, you know, of certain trees, like the Tree of Versailles that leads to other oh, things, right, right. and all these things. Um, he says, in an analogous manner, Christ's atoning death on the cross presents us with another way to conceive and respond to sin and injustice than a simplistic settling of accounts. It enables us to take with the utmost seriousness the true evil of evil, the true injustice of injustice. After all, these powers crucified God, but also enables us to short-circuit the endless cycle of recrimination, retribution, and revenge due to God's utter transformation of the meaning and reality of that death. And I think that is, there, there's something there that when you take this in, that when you take that, that, that this is not sort of, you know, it's God, God doesn't need to be appeased 
so to say, but God needs to change our relationship to himself, and it, it is a sort of poetic justice to which it's done, then you do see the world differently as, as someone who learns the humility of living forgiven. Amen. Just as one loves more and more, will one love less and 